Welcome back. Today's episode is part of an ongoing series on liberal arts education and the importance that it may play in the contemporary university. In this episode, I speak with Jonathan Marks. Jonathan has a PhD from the University of Chicago and is a professor of politics in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Ursinus College. We explore what is a liberal arts education and how it relates to the, quote, great books of the Western intellectual canon, the conflicts that have arisen from the, quote, battle of the books, both in the 1990s and now, and also spend quite a bit of time exploring Jonathan's new book, Let's Be Reasonable, a conservative case for liberal arts education. Our discussion is a bit broader here than the first episode in this series, but this broadness helps illustrate one of the benefits that comes from engaging in this form of pedagogy and participating with this ever-evolving canon of authors and works. I hope you'll continue to join me in future episodes in this series as I explore the relevance of the liberal arts education in the contemporary university. Here is my conversation with Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for coming and spending a little bit of time uh, with me today to talk about uh, liberal arts education. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Stephen. So uh, as I, I've indicated, we're going to, uh, this is part of a series that I'm doing on my podcast on questions of liberal arts education. What is it? Why is it? Why do we have it? Why shouldn't we have it? We're going to explore a bunch of these things. Um, and, and Jonathan, you've been very gracious to agree to come and participate in this. So, but before we get started on that, if you uh, wouldn't mind telling everybody who you are, what you do, where you come from, why you're interested in liberal arts education, uh, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, my name, um, we already know that, right, is Jonathan Marks. Um, I have to get this, and I was born in Brooklyn, although I only got to spend a couple of weeks there before moving on to uh, Staten Island. Uh, my mother did not finish college. She started out at Brooklyn College, but did not finish up. And she was um, what one used to call a housewife, I guess today we'd say homemaker, and then became a legal secretary. My father um, was a product of um, the city college system. Um, he graduated from Baruch College and became an accountant. Um, I, I bring that up because, because um, especially my mother's um, situation is something to do with, with what I think of, of liberal education. Maybe we'll get to that later on. Um, I myself am a product of the uh, public schools until I enrolled at the University of Chicago uh, where I majored in philosophy and then went on to get a PhD in an interdisciplinary program called the Committee on Social Thought. Um, since then, uh, most of my scholarly work uh, has been on the 18th century uh, political philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, in my recent career, um, I've been doing um, more public writing, let's say, uh, for uh, magazines like uh, Commentary Magazine, um, for whom um, I blog and other outlets. Uh, I'm most recently the author of a book about um, liberal education. And I, I think as we get more into our discussion, I think I can say more about why it's important to me, but the book is called Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. I'm now going to pause for a few seconds, give everybody a chance to buy it, okay? Google um, it, right? You've got it. And um, 
I, I will say that I was moved um, to write the book in part uh, out of gratitude for um, the kind of education that I, I, I think that I received and try to practice. Um, I've taught at Michigan State. I taught for four years at a little Lutheran institution in Kenosha, Wisconsin called Carthage College. Mm -hmm. um, and I now teach at Ursinus College in uh, glorious Collegeville in southeastern Pennsylvania. Very good. So uh, it's interesting. My, my bio is different than yours, but we have some um, things that intersect. I, I'm the first one in my family to graduate from high school. Um, so uh, the idea of going on to college and I just, I just earned my PhD uh, oh, about a month ago. Um, so uh, congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. That, um, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, perspective. I think sometimes when people uh, don't necessarily come from the academy and then somehow get absorbed into it. Um, and I, I got that very much uh, in reading your book, which I found uh, very enjoyable. There's there's a lot of um, wit and humor that is laced throughout it uh, in, in a way that uh, pokes fun at people in all the right kinds of ways. Um, and so I, I look forward to speaking uh, more about the book as we, as we talk about these things more broadly. But I think grounding it in our in the biographies, I think would be interesting. Why, why does a liberal arts education appeal to you so much, given your background? Well, I, I think in some ways it, it appeals to me for the same reason that uh, it appeals to people who who don't have the same background. That is to say, um, I, I think that uh, your podcast begins with the. Uh, universality uh, of the desire to know. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in that sense, I think that um, liberal education may be in its earliest uh, forms and for a long time wasn't quite meant for everybody. Uh, my mother certainly wasn't the intended recipient of a liberal education, I would say, for the overwhelming majority of its history, but uh, one facet of American education, as many problems as it presents, um, that I find um, uh, inspiring, alluring, um, is that it seeks to um, bring education, really, I, I think in the broadest sense, in spite of the vocationalism in some ways of our educational stuff, there's still an element that suggests that um, all of us, um, not just an elite few, right, ought to learn not only uh, how to be a good citizen, although that, that, that's important and that's already a step up <laughs> right. um, for, for many of us, but, but also um, how to use our leisure well, right? Um, that there's an element of our lives that are free from necessity, and um, that there's a place um, to use your capacities um, to their fullest extent, not, not bound to um, the need to make a buck. I, I would wanna say though that, that my background certainly wasn't antithetical um, to liberal education as I conceive in at least a couple of ways. And, and I noticed this or came to notice this more and more as I, as I entered into a, a teaching environment. Uh, 
So my mother always regretted not finishing college. Um, and she had been really interested, in fact, in, in philosophy. And uh, she held on um, to some of her books and hold on to a lot of college books. She, she held on to a couple that bore on um, philosophy and tried to interest me in them, although she didn't uh, pursue those things herself. Um, and I also grew up in um, a, a home environment that greatly valued um, arguments, not always uh, for the right reasons. My, my father loved to get a rise out of people, but still um, valued argument. There, there, there is some semblance of at least an idea that we ought to be able to um, defend our views um, with reasons um, rather than have them grounded in unexamined prejudice. And I think that's, that's the liberating heart um, of liberal education. Yeah, I think that that's that, what that's such an excellent answer um, and response because uh, there's some of this in in talking with others. The way we speak about liberal arts education, it has become a bit amorphous. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. Um, it, it's not necessarily when we talk about the trivium or the quadrivium and sort of the history of liberal arts education. It may include that. It may be a little more broadly defined as. Um, like the platonic imagery of the turning over of the soul and, and attempting to point us towards something that's more reasonable. Um, I don't know where you fall in that assessment um, or even in the way that um, God help them college administrators think of liberal arts education as a smattering of this and a smattering of that, you know, and um, you know, if you, you <laughs> Uh, one of my undergrad professors, a mentor of mine would say, you know, you've got, uh, you've got your broad liberal arts education if, if you can order French fries in French. <laughs> <laughs> who, who was that? Uh, his name was Elliot Bartke. Um, and uh, he graduated from Rutgers way back, uh, well, way back, back in the 70s. And uh, so he, you know, liked to poke fun. And yeah, uh, <laughs> well, I, I do think that I, I agree with you that um, the way we talk about it is amorphous. And I talk about this a little bit in my book, but one of the clear signs of this, I would say, is that the leading institutional defender of liberal education in our higher education universe is probably the American Association of Colleges and Universities. Uh, they certainly make that claim for themselves. They publish a journal called Liberal Education. They make many statements in support of liberal education, but they're yeah, if you receive their emails, as I do, it's, it's a grab bag of assessment best practices. And uh, here are some skills over here that might be useful um, to you. And, and by the way, uh, we should also do racial reckoning. And it's just a sort of a blob of stuff, which I think also does represent in some ways the administrators talk about this so that Almost every, well, that's an exaggeration, but many, many, many institutions um, in the United States describe themselves as, as liberal arts institutions, but it seems like uh, liberal arts is a kind of magic dust that you sprinkle over your hotel management program to make it sound um, highfalutin. E even professors who come in to interview for jobs at an institution like mine, which defines itself as a liberal arts institution, if you ask them, why do you want to work? Um, at a liberal arts institution, institution practice of liberal education, the most common answer is, well, I, I hear you've got small classes. And I like the idea yeah. of working closely with students. And while small classes can be helpful 
um, for um, this kind of education that it's not definitive of it. And so it's quite striking that even people who sit in the higher education universe who might come to work at such institutions still think in terms of, you know, small classes, you get well-rounded, whatever um, that means. Yeah. Um, I, I tried to defend a, a more specific version of liberal arts education or liberal education, which I think are connected to each other in a way um, I'll describe um, in a moment. But, but more specific, um, I, you know, I, I think it's important, even if it's not the only justification of liberal education that's available, I, I think it is important to be fairly specific about what we're doing, but both internally, since you know, we know what we're doing, um, as teachers remind ourselves of that, and, and also externally how we present ourselves um, to others. Um, so I, you know, I've already said that to be governed by unexamined prejudices, right? Um, that's not to be free. And um, I, I base my idea of liberal education in many ways, though not entirely on the writings of uh, John Locke, who along with others um, has observed that you know, we're partial beings. We, we see but in part, he says, and we know but in part, and therefore it's no wonder we conclude not right from our partial views. Uh, I'm quoting him, I, I don't talk like that. And <laughs> um, you know, he talks about the remedy, um, necessarily partial, I suppose, but the remedy for um, that, uh, you know, sometimes it's a help, but in this respect, that, that, that defect. Um, so you have to listen to, as he says, the opposite arguings of men of parts, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Talented people that show the different sides of things. Um, you also have to listen to people who you think you're, you're smarter than, actually, who fall short of you in capacity and penetration, because, you know, such as our experience, even very learned people don't recognize the narrowness of the grounds on which their arguments sometimes rest. So even speaking to somebody who has a different experience than yours um, can correct um, for your partialness. Uh, you know, we need to recognize that the limits of the sciences that we study um, and the books that we read, again, that these are defects maybe in particular of learned people, um, who need to become acquainted with different ways and traditions of, of knowing um, from the ones with which they're already familiar. Um, it involves some reading of old books. I mean, Locke in the 18th century is a little bit worried that people were too focused on old books. We still recognize their importance. Part of our narrowness may be one of the hardest to overcome, right, is the narrowness of, of time because you, you can't meet people, you know, who lived a long time ago. So it's difficult to, to overcome that. Um, and maybe travel too, right? Uh, Locke-like study abroad, as do we. So if you can swing it anyway, uh, part of our narrowness is the narrowness of place. You, you see on this basis of trying to overcome our partialness that we can um, uh, overcome the narrowness of our prejudices and try to set ourselves um, on a foundation that can be better justified uh, by reason from that emerges a lot of elements of what we now think of uh, as liberal arts education. That was one of the things that I very much enjoyed about the your book was grounding it much more in, in Locke than where I don't want us to call them standard fare because that's a bit too dismissive, but where other books that are advocating for things like this usually ground them in John Stuart Mill um, and grounding it not just in sort of liberal arts education, but in the very much in liberalism itself. 
and I appreciated that because there is a kind of um, weary-eyed skepticism sometimes in Locke. Uh, one of my favorite passages on concerning education, like you should learn some Greek. You probably don't need to bother too much with Latin, but you need to learn some Greek. <laughs> I, I very much appreciated this from Locke. <laughs> um, and that what this, but what it does is it, it sets up a standard where it's not just, um, again, you get enough in, in your area two or three, or, you know, you learn something about some people, you do a little sociology, you do a little biology, um, you may accidentally stumble into a political science class. And, uh, you know, you have this well-rounded uh, education, which I, I'm not ever sure what that means. I think you could probably get there by eating too much. But, <laughs> they, uh, you know, whatever it, it tends to mean that uh, for, for Locke and the way that I, I really like the way that the book set it out, the goal of liberal arts education is reasonableness. It's not it's not rationality as such. It's not, you know, just being rational. It's being able to give an account of something. Um, do you think that's a fair assessment? I do think that's a fair assessment, but I'd like to add a little something to it, just because you reminded me of um, a difference between Locke and at least the Mill of On Liberty. I'm not sure if this would really carry through yeah. um, to Mill altogether, but certainly the Mill that, that we talk about. You know, a distinction that's, that's of tremendous importance um, to Locke. You know, he says he doesn't really know of any greater difference um, is the difference between um, a figure he calls the, the man um, of reason um, and um, the logical chicaner, right? Someone who uses logic basically to deceive, but we, we would speak more broadly, I think of, um, you know, Bloch sometimes talks about the disputatious also. We would think in terms of, you know, uh, bullshitters, spokespeople for cornered politicians, maybe your social media frenemy, right? Um, who... Uh, maybe in full possession of all of the skills that we associate um, with reasoning, and the colleges tend to package under the rubric of critical thinking. Yeah. To be a critical thinker here, now that they know how to do all that, <laughs> and they may even be better at it than we are in some ways. Just frustratingly good at finding the holes, you know, um, in your argument. But uh, you know, they want to win, right? They're never going to be persuaded. They're not open to persuasion uh, by any argument that you could make. Um, so that when we sort of pleadingly say, be reasonable, we don't mean let's brush up on uh, what maybe you forgot uh, from Logic 101. We mean something more like, well, you know, let's stop fooling around here. Uh, let's stop puffing ourselves up. Let's stop defending our tribe and let's try to see what conclusions we can come to from what we know. And if we don't know enough to come to any kind of all conclusion, what will we need to find out um, or think about more? And, you know, as if that really mattered, right? <laughs> that is to say that there, there's a desire to understand uh, here on which we act, uh, that we're prepared, even though it's awfully hard um, to be governed um, by the better argument, if we can figure out what that is, if it holds up under sort of repeated scrutiny, um, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's an echo of very old distinction between philosophers and sophists. And as I said, it's critical to Locke. Now, in order to get that though, right, that, that, that sounds a lot like 
like a character trait in a way, a disposition, mm-hmm. right? S- something like that, that, that really requires cultivation, partly by talking about it, partly by example, partly by showing there's some payoff um, in the classroom um, to acting this way. They actually can make some progress. Otherwise, what, 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 you know, what's the reason to um, stick with it? Um, whereas when you look at, at, at Mill, there's, there's more of a, an emphasis on something I also think is important, right? Freedom of thought and discussion is if we could just sort of take the student and, and fling them into <laughs> an arena and say, you know, you, you, you figure it out. Um, so, so one of the things I like very much about Locke um, is the extent to which he recognizes um, the fragility of reason, um, the difficulty of maintaining um, a frame of mind uh, in which you're willing to try to let reason guide you rather than using it as a weapon to pummel other people over the head with. Yeah, I, and that I really like the distinction between the, the philosopher and the sophist. And um, I suppose for anybody who's listening that hasn't gone through and done the Greek that Locke recommends um, that the sophist, um, like the word means wise, it's, it's grounded in the word philosopher, but it also means clever. And uh, so what we're kind of talking about, and I think it's a really good illustration of this is there's a distinction between the person who, uh, who loves something that's wise, we could say who's attempting to be reasonable. And then the person who understands the instruments of it and can put them to the use that they see fit. Um, right, someone who's very clever that can turn a phrase that, again, is probably quite good at PR, social media. Um, that that's not our goal of of a liberal arts education isn't instrument based. Um, that there is a substance to it. That it's not just learning the skills of of rhetoric. Um, that there is a kind of character that is um, required. I think your distinction there on Mill is really good. I, I sometimes find Mill to be almost like reading Rawls. There's so many things that are presumed um, that, you know, oh, yes, in a society where everybody has a liberal character, this should work. Um, but you got to build that first. Uh, and maybe part of that is displayed by the free expression and, and open inquiry. But it's not necessarily going to be the end of free exploration and free inquiry either. Um, I don't know what you think about that, about the relationship between those two things. Well, I think that um, you need the the prospect of being able to um, say and think things that um, might offend others or might seem forbidden or taboo um, to get as far as one can in examining one's own prejudices and trying to set oneself on uh, a, a firm footing. But you know, one of the things I teach, and maybe this is the best way of getting at it, um, at Ursinus, um, I, I teach some Platonic dialogues. Everybody at Ursinus reads um, Plato's Euthyphro, which is a quite famous dialogue concerning uh, piety, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe we'd call it religiosity, but piety. Um, and, and I also um, teach often in my 
intro political philosophy course, um, uh, parts of Plato's Republic, much of it, because we spend uh, probably a good third of the course on that text. But one of the things that really strikes you is that, that Socrates' uh, interlocutors, the people he's talking to, they don't feel especially free <laughs> in a way. They're, they're, they're being subjected to a very rigorous kind of investigation. At one point in the Republic, one of Socrates', um, uh, again, interlocutors, people he's talking to, complains that he's, he's not allowed just to make speeches Right, that that's not the way it works, and he's he's not very happy um, about that. So that, you know, when we're talking about becoming reasonable, we're not talking about necessarily a, you know an utter free for all, um, but we're talking about uh, a pursuit that proceeds along um, at least provisional lines. That is to say, we have provisional agreements about ways of distinguishing between um, stronger and weaker arguments, better or worse evidence, appropriate, inappropriate evidence, right? That kind of thing, which will differ according to probably what kind of thing that, that we're studying. Um, but there are provisional standards and it doesn't feel like, wow, no, I get to say whatever I want, right? So it's a subjection of yourself to something. Um, but not the subjection of somebody else's arbitrary opinion, right? Um, but subjection to standards that you've determined are needed in order for you to be able to govern yourself um, according um, to opinions of which, as you said earlier in the conversation, um, you, you can give a satisfactory account. Uh, maybe not a knockdown, drag out final account that will convince everybody, but at least an account that you're uh, satisfied with for the time being. Yeah, and uh, this this makes me think of the passage in the in your book where you um, argue with Patrick Deneen a bit um, about some of these things because uh, this notion of what does it mean to be a conservative and why is that the title that you are the subtitle of your book. Um, there's part of it we have to argue is does conservative sort of mean the pre-liberal conception of it, where it's a sort of an adherence to church and state as in one unity? Is it engaged in this kind of preservation effort, like a Lincolnian kind of conservative? Um, does it mean you just want tax cuts? Um, right. Uh, you know, is it just some of the, or is it whatever the current Republican party is in opposition to the Democrats, therefore you're a conservative, right? What, what's the way we're going to use this? I found that to be particularly um, appropriate to, to what you just said, because the, the argument that you're making is that uh, liberation actually requires a kind of, um, I don't want to call it subjugation, but where you put yourself in a position of being a subject to something greater than you. Um, it isn't liberation from all constraint. It's about choosing the correct thing to be constrained by. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, but I, I do think that's fair. And, and one, of the, one of the strange things I think about, so, so Patrick Deneen has written a number of things, um, and I think he's well worth reading, um, you know, his best known work um, nowadays would be Why Liberalism Failed. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, that's a fairly full-throated <laughs> um, uh, assault on um, 
modern liberal thinking um, from the perspective of one who thinks that it has failed decisively, and we, we, we can know that. And I'm happy to say, say more about him, but one of the things that I find odd about his argument is that he, he does distinguish between um, ancient Greek and Roman, more or less, right? And then after that, um, also sort of medieval Christian conceptions of, of what it means to be free. And, and, and this all, you know, in the end comes down to being under some kind of constraint, roughly of the sort that you've described. And if he understands contemporary liberalism as a break where, um, you know, you're more or less worshiping yourself. Um, I don't think he'd put it that way, but there, there, there's nothing really constraining you. And so, you know, he complains even about um, thinkers who have been embraced by a good sector, you might say, um, of conservatives. I think of um, Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. Bloom was one of my teachers. Um, and that book came out in 1987 in his defense of what we used to call uh, great books education. But um, Deneen doesn't like it because he, he thinks it's sort of liberal, right? That is to say liberal in the sense of here I am an individual alone right, um, all by myself, and I'm going to figure out <laughs> um, what is I'm going to do. And, and from Deneen's perspective, um, that's no good because, you know, we're, we're, we're not alone. Um, and we're certainly not healthy if we're alone. And the only human health to be had is to be uh, rooted um, in family, village, community, looking back to your father and your father's father to your children and your children's children. And, and this strikes me as a, as a quite respectable view and version of conservatism, but to get to, it took me a while to get to the point, Socrates is just, it's as if he's not there um, in Deneen's account of ancient thought, right? And um, you know, Socrates would be, I think, a, a worthy exemplar of someone who persuades his interlocutors that there, that there is something shameful, right? Shame is something I talk about some of my book too, right? Mm -hmm. So something shameful in um, proceeding on the basis of things that you can't be confident and have never even considered, right? Uh, whether you should be confident uh, that they're true <laughs> uh, or good or, or just. Um, and that reflects a kind of um, responsibility, both to uh, what's best in, in yourself, right, um, your mind, your reason, but that in turn, right, has to answer to something outside of it. Yeah, that's um, my, my academic work, such as it is, the early part of my life is, uh, was my dissertation was on Aristotle. And so I very much resonate with, with that, um, you know, where he is um, Socratic in a way, <laughs> um, certainly not as, uh, I don't want to say, he, he's not as uh, gadfly-y <laughs> um, <laughs> as such, right? Um, but there is very much that sense, and I, I, I'm, I smiled, which people who are listening won't be able to see, obviously, when you said that it felt like Socrates is missing, because that was very much the sense that I got as well, that uh, 
that there is something um, that is tradition breaking about political philosophy in the Platonic tradition. And that's one of its great sort of challenges. Um, you know, Socrates doesn't um, get his parade. <laughs> he is executed, right? Um, and Aristotle, if, if, uh, if our account of it is correct, is forced out of the city for all kinds of political reasons. Some maybe doing with Alexander, some with maybe because they thought he was an atheist and these kinds of things. You don't, you're not going to have that in a liberal project if it's well instantiated, right? That's also one of the other things that you mentioned here that we, we allow um, professors in some ways to be kind of kooky um, and to engage in these kinds of things that otherwise would be tremendously subversive. Um, but we have a certain level of, uh, and I don't use this as a pejorative, tolerance for them. Um, and yeah, and, and, and that, that I think is, is not to be underestimated. In other words... No, I'm sympathetic to the argument that there are, are obstacles um, to pursuing philosophic work um, under contemporary conditions, right? And, 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 you know, it's not a novel insight of the you know, 21st century that, that, that there can be um, some difficulties. So, so, so Rousseau, right, in the 18th century, um, says that the danger of somebody like Socrates in this period is not that they're going to be killed, but that they'll be ridiculed, <laughs> that they'll be laughed at. And today, the obstacle is something more along the lines of, and one experiences as a teacher all the time, that people already think that they're Socratics in some sense or another. Yeah. So when you say, know yourself, all of your students say, check. You know, that is exactly what we want to do and what we, we think we're in the process of doing. Um, so, so, it, so it takes some work in a way to um, uncover uh, the radicalness, you might say, or potential radicalness um, of, of the enterprise. Um, another issue with, with, which Bloom brings um, um, to the forefront in the closing of the American mind is it, it, it's nice, you might say, for a thinker to have a well-established uh, tradition, right, in which people to believe, in which people believe, right, um, in a way against which to argue, right? Uh, a tradition indicates that, that the stakes are, are quite high, <laughs> you might say, um, in what we think um, about certain matters. Um, and so, you know, you can say, well, there, there really are some, some obstacles here that, um, that, that, that one has to be concerned with. But again, you know, it reminds me of an issue that we have um, in, in the Jewish community. I will now reveal myself as Jew, right? Um, where we tend to say that um, you know, the problem is less in spite of rising anti-Semitism at the moment, uh, the problem is less that people are going to kill us and that they're going to love us to death. That is to say that, that, that will assimilate, right? Yeah. And that will make us forget um, our Judaism, and there's, there's a version of that that I think matters when it takes the form of down with liberalism because of that, right? I, I, I can't go on that train because it seems to me that there's considerable virtue to not being killed. Yeah. I mean, also, generally speaking, being being left alone. I mean, the community that I grew up on, Staten Island, and I, I don't mean in any way, um, because I think it's important to draw attention to in any way to diminish um, you know, the real dangers to visible Jews, even in New York City at this very moment, but the community I grew up in, uh, which was partly Orthodox Jewish, uh, partly 
um, uh, Italian Catholic, you know, so it's sort of a neighborhood with um, different things going on. It's predominantly, I think it seems to be so anywhere when I visit, predominantly Orthodox and, um, you know, visibly so. That is to say, um, uh, people, uh, they don't like to be called this, but just, just uh, um, for the sake of uh, recognition, the ultra-Orthodox, right? Uh, uh, many such people in the community. And they're able to live in such a community, have their own schools, are relatively molested. That's not something to sneeze at and to sort of say down with liberalism, right? That's something it seems to me that liberalism makes possible, does present real problems for somebody seeking to raise an Orthodox Jewish child. Um, but uh, one can do it, and, and it arguably presents fewer problems than you know, people being out to murder you um, over what you think. And I, I would say something parallel about the plight of philosophy. Yes, there are some real problems, but let's not underestimate the value of not being beheaded. Yeah, right. Yeah. 10 pound haircuts, you don't tend to come back from them. You know, <laughs> they, they ruin your whole day. That's exactly right. And um, yeah, it's funny that Rousseau mentions that about Socrates. I'd forgotten that. It's like, but Socrates was ridiculed in his time. <laughs> like, you know, That's it, true. It, it isn't foreign to him. He was very much aware. Um, you know, Plato may have been, you know, incensed by it. And, and we get <laughs> philosophy because of the ridicule. Um, but there's a, a seriousness that ridicule also plays that I think could be interesting that we could come to uh, in a bit. Um, but yet the point about um, Judaism. So I, I, uh, I'm from the Midwest, nice Protestant boy. So I, you know, I, uh, I actually, I, um, Bloom, I read his, that book, the, the closing uh, when I was an undergrad and changed, I don't want to say it changed everything about my life, but it certainly changed the way I thought about my education and my place in the university. And I grew up about two hours from where he was born in Indianapolis. So I, I felt okay. a, a resonance with him. And um, so that 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 passage that he has about yeah somehow college students today in the 80s right where your most connectivity was uh, on your your cassette player with your walkman <laughs> um somehow they uh that they already know themselves in a kind of i don't know ignorant solipsism something like this where uh today there is an increasing quest uh among students I, th I thought this as I was reading through your book about um, the collapsing of the personal and the political. We get sort of out of the feminist movement in the late 80s and early 90s, even before then, but it sort of comes to the political for then. That there is even more of that now, um, another amorphous word, identity politics, um, where those things increasingly collapse. So what you think is what you are, but because I know who I am, you can't question that because then you're questioning my existence, right? Um, and so these kinds of it, it in some ways precludes the ability to cultivate this kind of character. Cause why do I need it? I'm already perfect. <laughs> you know, I've, I've already, I've already set this sort of thing up, but one of the, the things I like, and I, I think this is in your fourth chapter. I think that's right. Where you talk about, I don't want to say that the kids are all right, but that the kids are, the students are what the students have been. Um, they may be a little bit more distracted now, but um, you know, the MTV generation is the iPhone generation maybe to a higher degree. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, uh, you know, in, in the book, I do talk about how it seems to me that since I became a teacher, I've been told roughly the same thing about whatever the new generation of students are, you know, that they have the attention span of Labrador retrievers, that you dare not um, teach them long books, and that if you can find videos and kind of change your mode of teaching every two to three minutes, you're likely to have better success than 
um, in other ways. And yeah, so the brief on millennials, I guess, was the same more or less as the brief on Generation Z. And, um, you know, maybe a, a prejudice of mine <laughs> has something to do with the study of um, the history of philosophy. But, yeah, I think the obstacles to learning at um, pretty much at all times and all places are, are fairly profound. Um, that there are motives to learn more or less at all times um, and all places. You know, um, Locke, whose understanding of um, education isn't all that erotic, um, says that, uh, so he tends to, instead of looking up, he has people looking at foundations and we're looking down, says that, you know, when you point out to somebody or cause them to realize um, that they have no real basis for thinking what they think. They don't just say, okay, that's great and go on with their lives. Um, they find that to be a problem, which they can react to in a variety of ways. They might, uh, you know, uh, experience some discontent and then kind of the next day try to go back to the same old argument. I think that's fairly common. Uh, they might get angry. They might, as happens um, at the end of Plato's Euthyphro, realize they've got another appointment and hightail it out of there um, before they can be questioned too harshly. But, you know, that they care. <laughs> and right. and that, that means that there's, that there's always, you know, a prospect of getting somewhere. And uh, my students, they, they do seem to care, right? Um, so, you know, the trick, so to speak, you know, that worked 20 years ago still kind of work now, right? Uh, many of them, even if they're not Christian, except some secularized version of um, Christian ethics, but at the same time, they're, they're sort of, they think of themselves as hard-headed realists. Um, so I used to, I don't do this anymore, but I do versions of, I used to um, teach the gospel of Matthew followed immediately by Machiavelli's Prince. And they, they found that a bit jarring because they sort of believe both. And it became evident that if you think it through, you, you can't quite believe both. And students, you know, found that the kind of thing jarring then. They find that kind of thing jarring now. Um, yeah, you know, I like my students. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's no question, um, or at least there's not much question, uh, that... Um, they put fewer hours <laughs> into academic work than students did, you know, I'm, I'm making this number up 30 or 40 years ago. Um, so that's changed. Um, there are some other changes I feel like we can be pretty confident about, you know, as you can measure, if you ask the same question over and over again, uh, for example, the Higher Education Research Institute survey is asked year after year after year for over 50 years, though, they skip some years actually, but still there, there are a lot of years which they ask this, do you think your university has a right to, um, I forget the exact wording, but something like, you know, suppress extreme speakers or something like that. And you know, the, the number is, is much higher now <laughs> than it was say in, in the late seventies. And it's been, you know, there have been, it's not been, you know, a continuous upward slope, but the, the trend is very clear um, and, and large. Said, said it's clear that at least in, the, in this one narrow respect, students come in with different views than they had you know, in the late 70s. But I wasn't teaching in the late 70s. So they're, they're not so different from the views of students 
you know, when I started teaching in uh, 1998. So, you know, I, th I think, you know, we're always looking for an edge as teachers. We open up, you know, the Chronicle of Higher Education, try to figure out, right, what are our students like now? And we tend then to project that onto the students we have rather than, I think, really looking at the students we have and trying to, uh, to get to know them sometimes. I, I think that's right. And that resonated so much with me and, and my experience as a grad, graduate instructor and as an adjunct faculty member and these, and these kinds of things that um, I, I always say that I can't, I can't out entertain the things in the world. I can't do it. Right. I'm not, it, but I can be more interesting. I can be intriguing and I can make them go. I'm not sure why I think that. Um, and that tends to be a far better hook or captivator than, you know, um, lighting a hula hoop on fire and jumping through it. <laughs> That's right. I, I tried showing more midriff for a number of years, but once that <laughs> failed, I went, I went to these other techniques. <laughs> That's very good. That's right. And <laughs> But it, it says something about um, where broadly conceived, again, this sort of liberal arts character, ed, um, person, affect, all of these things sort of combined together. There seems to be something that, that, that the outcome of the character kind of understands that, that the, you want to be curious or, or you want to take natural curiosity and sort of aim it or direct it at something. And this, this always makes me think, well, the university in some sense is also based on that. I think every university says something to the extent of that their goal is uh, the creation and dissemination of knowledge. And we could spend the next, the rest of our lives talking about creation of knowledge, but um, you know, is that really what we're doing or doing something else? But um, all of those are really grounded in, in curiosity, this desire to understand this desire to know. And if liberal arts education is really in some ways about directing that, um, why do you think, or rather, let me ask even a broader question, what do you think the relationship is uh, between a liberal arts education and the current university structure, like its goals and its aspirations? Why aren't all schools liberal arts schools? Um, what a wonderful question. The, um, the uh, you know, for a Facebook relationship status would certainly be that's complicated. Let me say a couple of different things about this. Because um, I think in some ways, you know, the outlook is not very good. And, and in other ways, the outlook is better than it might have been um, in other times. Uh, so let, let, let me start, though, by talking about, uh, you know, so, something you said, right, that, um, you know, on the first day of orientation, you know, th there's a pretty good chance, you know, that the president of the university is going to uh, get up and talk about knowing yourself, you know, say something about Delphi and the Oracle, and you know, send people um, on their way to microaggression workshops. And um, <laughs> the university serves just, just a, a bewildering multitude of functions. And, um, you know, that's not surprising, uh, you know, it, it, it sits in, society wants a lot of different things from universities and somebody has to pay the bills and universities do a lot of things. And, you know, they always have, even medieval universities do a lot of different things. But um, so you can name among these things that, um, you know, they're, they're supposed to do job training somehow or another. Um, and the more democratic the university becomes, the more people go to it, the more th this has become, um, I, I think, an issue, right? So, so, so job training certainly 
um, citizenship education um, seems to be part of it. Credentialing, you know, which makes people really irritated about the university does seem to serve that function. I remember, you know, probably four decades ago now having a conversation with my cousin complaining that the college degree had essentially replaced the high school degree, right? It does that kind of credentialing. It was sort of true probably when he said that and maybe even more true um, now than it was then. Um, so, so many purposes among which is um, what we call um, liberal education. So what's its relationship? Well, it fits because within the confusing multitude of purposes that colleges and universities have, one of them, <laughs> um, I, I think is at least closely related to um, liberal education. But it, it really is buffeted by, you know, liberal education we've been discussing, it is really buffeted by a couple of different currents. One thing we've talked about in, in, in liberal education is that it has something to do ultimately with um, freedom from necessity, how we use whatever leisure we can get a hold of, right? Um, and, you know, th th there are a couple of different complaints, I think, that um, narrow the range of um, liberal education or at least of its appeal. One is what we call vocationalism, right? Um, I'm not sure that's a great word for it, but it you know possesses um, members of the board of trustees and certainly a lot of students and parents as well, where they want to know, okay, this major has a name. What's the close related name of the job that the major is going to get me? And, and this doesn't just you know people talk about how you know the humanities are in trouble and indeed they're probably in more trouble than in other fields. But if you look at the rounds of cuts or cuts that colleges are thinking of making, they cover fields like physics, right? you know, which are part of traditional liberal arts education where trustees seem to be saying to themselves something to their administrators, something effective. Well, you know, we do need physicists to train engineers. We don't need physics department, right? So yep. um, that really, really narrow utilitarian understanding of the major is not connected to a job. Um, I, the student, don't want to take the major. And I, the trustee, don't want to support the major. And, you know, sometimes there are good reasons. I mean, in the end, you have to get students to attend your classes, right? But, um, but, but um, that's one problem. Then on what seems to be the opposite end, which I think is close to relate, is the activist concern, which is also about usefulness, though, right? That is to mm -hmm. say that there are these really pressing problems um, that we've got, and we just don't have time for dithering, you know, with, you know, highfalutin questions, right? Because we need to stop global warming or we need to uh, be anti-racist um, or, or, or what have you. None of which, you know, are concerns that one should sneeze at, but it's at that same emphasis on, well, this is not useful and we need to do something useful. And um, there's always been, the, these are old charges against philosophers as well as liberal education. Um, the charge that, um, that maybe it's pernicious, that tends to come more from the outside, right? That's doing actual harm. Um, so Republican state legislators, you know, not just now, right, but um, before too have worried that there are people in universities who are, who are corrupting our children. So, um, you know, it sits there in the university, but it, it's buffeted by a lot of forces, some of them internal um, to university, because the university does, does want to say we're being vocational. We'll get you jobs, 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 right, along with everything else that it says. 
got a great career development center and there's some classrooms attached to it, right? Um, that, that, that kind of thing, to, to exaggerate. Um, uh, probably a great deal, but <laughs> um, the, the, there's something to it also. So that's one thing, right? So it sits there, it, it, it has some, some purchase, but is always, you know, under attack. Um, but then also, and, and this is where I get to the part where I think that there's a sense in which um, things are pretty good um, for would-be liberal educators. A lot of people looking at the situation now, especially humanists, say, well, the problem really is the research university. Um, we don't like that, or at least we don't like the shift that it represents, because there used to be this thing, let's call it the college, right, uh, prior to the development of the research university in the late 19th century or so, and that college was sort of more concerned with fundamental human questions, the whole person, um, it may have come out of religious preconceptions and worries, but can be secularized, seems to have more of a place for, you know, humanistic concerns, and you know, I look at the argument, which I have a lot of sympathy with, right? We've talked a little bit about character and character education. So I certainly wouldn't um, diminish the importance of those things. But there is kind of moralism to that understanding of education that that, that can get in the way um, of freedom of thought and discussion. One sign of this is that, you know, academic freedom, at least as we currently understand it, is built up in a lot of ways in unison with the rise of the uh, research university. And the justification for it is basically we need untrammeled freedom of thought, right? And so, so there's a way in which the research university, if you can find a corner of it to operate on, if they don't cut your job um, because they need to build, you know, they, they need to re-astroturf um, the fields, um, you've got a lot of room to operate. Um, you know, the, the modern university, despite, you know, uh, attempts more or less successful to politicize it um, has, has been, and I think still is, at least up to a point. I mean, again, despite concerns about cancel culture and before that about political correctness, remains a place where there's a strong prejudice against dogmatism and in favor of freedom to operate. Um, and, and, and that's a way in which if you're thinking about um, a mode of education that insists um, on the examination of prejudices, the research universities is a pretty good development in, in a lot of respects. Even if it's too professionalized, even if it takes too much, you know, the natural sciences to be the main or almost sole model of what getting at the truth looks like, there's still this element of freedom and anti-dogmatism in there that I think that is quite valuable. Um, for people looking to practice liberal education has penetrated, you know, not just research universities, but, you know, regular old colleges like mine as well. Yeah, that that's that strikes me as right, especially the, um, the whole thing. It strikes me as correct. Um, but your your optimism, I, I think. So when I my undergraduate uh, career was at a regional uh, satellite campus of Indiana University. So it was commuters and like I had no business ever falling into political philosophy. Like I shouldn't, I, I should be working in a warehouse as some sort of middle management or something, but I got lucky. <laughs> really what it just came down to, I got lucky. I took one class and now here I am. And, uh, but it makes me, my, me think about exactly those opportunities that, that exist in the universities to reach kids that were like me, that uh, expose you to ideas that people have been debating for millennia and you get to go, oh, I get to think about it. I don't know that I'll ever contribute to it, but I at least get to think about it. 
And why is it that um, these things have come to shape me the way that they have? Do they, do they not? Um, it, that it, I think that is the, the most optimistic part of the university is that you, those things still exist. Um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there, there's a lot wrong, <laughs> but those things um, still exist. Um, so, so I like very much, for example, I don't know if you know Zena Hitz's book, Lost in Thought. Yep. So it's a lovely book. Mm -hmm. And um, I think an important part it makes is that, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of respects in which universities are not all that conducive um, to liberal education. You know, so some of them we've already mentioned. Uh, one she really emphasizes is the high degree of professionalization um, that's present not only at sort of top flight research universities, but, you know, we're all trained in graduate programs that sort of inculcate those same values. And so, you know, many of us are quite narrowly specialized in such a way that even if you're working in the humanities, you're working on questions that are uh, not recognizably <laughs> kinds of questions. Um, you know, uh, me, typical human student, <laughs> you know, right. um, considers connected to any question that I might uh, want to grapple with. So yeah, it's a real problem. And as is, she discusses vocationalism, multitude of purposes at universities. She makes the very important point, I think, that, um, you know, learning is not the province simply of um, professionals, you know, a very democratic um, point. And uh, my book tries to, to drink of the democratic spirit again, you know, like Toadful, right? There, there, there are some disadvantages, but some great things um, about democracy, right? He says in democracy in America that it can reveal the natural greatness of human beings. And one aspect of the natural greatness of human beings is our, our capacity to become engaged um, in um, free thought about the most important matters. He's a defender of intellectual freedom. So, um, uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing that, um, you know, education could, could reach somebody, uh, you know, like me, conspire somebody um, like my mother and, and, and that, that liberal education in particular can do so. Um, and, and one important route to that, I think still the most important part is the universities, even though a lot of wonderful education takes place outside um, of universities. And indeed, as, as I pointed out, I think in some ways, my childhood was at least, at least it prepared me in some sense to be receptive um, to it and liberal education, liberal arts precede the existence of universities. So um, universities aren't the be all and end all. They do present some real obstacles to um, liberal education. Um, but to mention in, in another book, this is where I'll mention other books secure in the knowledge that everybody ordered my book during the brief pause. Yes. Um, I gave them to do so. so but, um, you know, it just came out, Jonathan Rauch's Constitution of Knowledge. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it yet. but um, Making my way through it now, yeah. Yeah, but I, I'd recommend it very highly. One of the points he makes, which... Um, and he acknowledges um, Yuval Levin, um, you know, a prominent conservative um, intellectual, making this point is the importance of, of institutions, right? Um, you know, so, so, so some things aren't going to just happen um, by chance. And uh, Rout says, although he thinks universities are in really bad shape in a lot of ways right now, he nonetheless makes them part of what he calls um, the constitution of knowledge, and what what he what he essentially you know means by that is um, the institutions you know which in turn have you know habits, practices, aims, right, and so on. 
um, that are uh, designed um, for inquiry, um, that are designed, uh, you know, we, we would say for knowledge production, but I think not just for quote unquote production of knowledge, but for, for, for inquiry um, into um, questions we uh, want or sometimes really need um, answers to, um, or at least greater confidence uh, with respect to. And, you know, one of the things he points out is that, you know, you know before you had such institutions, you know, the, education still took place, um, one encountered um, geniuses, but if your institution is working right, right, to some extent, you're still relying on luck. I mean, almost every story I know of people who've ended up in my line of work depends on a chance encounter <laughs> you know, with, with, with a teacher, you kind of lucked into it. I know you had um, uh, Alex Priu on your show recently, and he kind of begins with, with that, that really he was on a different track altogether. Um, so there's some element of chance, but still, right, if your institution is set up well, you just have a somewhat better shot at somebody completely outside of it and, and figuring out, all right, I've got this desire to know, and there's this charlatan here, <laughs> and there's figure I can learn something from there. If the institution is working, you have a somewhat better chance of encountering, right, a non-charlatan, to put it in the most, um, you know, so sort of in the, in the most... Uh, um, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, humble, I guess. I yeah. guess respect, respect possible, right? Maybe there are fewer non-charlatans, although there are plenty of charlatans here too. Um, so, you know, th that's what they're designed for. And Rochester thinks they're working very well. Um, and I, I think he's right. I mean, there are a lot of problems in colleges and universities. And I, I, I try to point out some of them, but no means all of them um, in my book. So, so I think all, all that's true, but at the same time, you know, especially go back, go back to Deneen, right? One shouldn't be too quick, you know, to clear away. I mean, he does want a different kind of college and universities. He's not really clearing away the whole thing, but, um, you know, there, there is a kind of ground clearing that's taking place here, both with respect to liberalism and with respect to a certain tradition of university education that, that's fairly old, has roots in something even older. Um, and uh, there's still a lot of great things going on um, at our colleges and universities. So I think, you know, you need to keep two things in mind, I think, at the same time. One is that um, uh, education is not the exclusive province of professionals. But on the other hand, institutions set up to um, transmit um, and uh, further the practice of, right, um, yeah, certain... Uh, habits, modes, and so on that are conducive to the pursuit of truth. Those don't spring up by chance. We shouldn't be too quick to um, uh, think about demolishing them. Um, you know, probably one effect of trying to demolish them is that the institutions that we despise will still be there, but the institutions where right. some good things might be going on, those are the ones that will wither on the vine. Certainly there's nothing about this destructive process that's, that's more likely to save what's good and preserve uh, you know, save what's good and uh, get rid of what's bad. So I, I think this this particular conservative criticism of higher education has a lot to it, but hasn't been been fully thought through. You know, the same goes for liberalism. I actually teach Deneen's book. I really like it um, in uh, political philosophy. So I've, I've, I've sold a, a few copies for him, although my class is usually pretty small. It's probably not helping too much. But, you know, he does get to, he does two things, right? I mean, on one hand, he admits that um, liberalism has... Um, 
you know, promoted many great things and we shouldn't get rid of them, right? So, you know, some elements of, of freedom, which, which he thinks I think are good, some elements of prosperity, which he thinks important, you know, um, health, right, that kind of thing. Um, you know, he doesn't sneeze at those, right? But then he says, so we should try to preserve those somehow without liberalism, with this new thing that we don't yeah. know what it is yet. And, you know, I, I mean, in a way, I think that's, that's better than, than what some of his, um, you know, I think in some ways, um, intellectual allies think, which is that we should be thinking very directly about imposing, right, um, some non-liberal order. Um, so I think of guys like uh, Sora Bamari, for example, who um, is, I think, opinion editor over at the New York Post, but really became you know, somewhat famous for, for just adopting this, this rather extreme way of talking about what's desirable to, you know, again, the imposition of our values, which are not um, liberal values. And aside from not being thought through fully, I think, in the sense that I worry a bit about Deneen's argument, right, it's, it's also just a kind of... Um, now, I think it's a gross miscalculation, right? On the one hand, here we are, beleaguered, the entire world is progressive. On the other hand, you know, us five or six opinion writers with are going to ride the populace to impose our order. That, that doesn't seem likely. And I think you know, the same goes for the universities, right? I mean, how, how does Deneen even come to, you know, his conclusions about liberalism, right? He has to go back to Greek and Roman thought. Yeah. He has to go back to old liberal thinkers, get a better handle on what liberalism is, because it's so much the air we breathe that's hard even to see it. Um, where do you learn about those thinkers at university? I mean, he received an education a lot like the kind of education, um, you know, uh, he and I, I think, had very similar um, educations. You know, I mentioned in my book, if you look at the, the open syllabus project, which collects millions, I think, seems hard to believe, but they, they do say that, a lot of syllabuses, right? And so you can play around with them and say, oh, okay, who's, who's most read? <laughs> I, I heard a lecture that Heather McDonald uh, gave when she said Shakespeare is on life support. And yeah, there may be a sense in which that's true, but he's still number one, still number one, right? Um, on the list of authors read in the Open Syllabus Project. So a lot of the authors that Deneen draws and that I draw, and you're most likely, you could encounter them someplace else, but you're most likely to encounter them still. Um, at university. Well, it's interesting, the, this whole thing, because the what I really like that you did that you tied in with the, the Zena Hiltz's book about, um, do you really need the university? You know, uh, reflect while you're doing the dishes or something, you know, and uh, you can engage in these like um, captured moments of intellectualism that, that don't require uh, these kinds of institutions. But then juxtaposing that with the reality that uh, we live in a hyper bureaucratic era and institutions are going to be with us as long as we are what we are. There's no really escaping that. It makes me think so much about um, the the sort of the realm outside of the university. And I think it was Andrew Sullivan that had a piece that said, we're all on the university now, maybe two or three years ago, and in his very polemic kind of way. Um, and it, I... I, I am drawn to this question a great deal. My, my dissertation was was about um, poetry and in Aristotle's thought, and um, poetry is very much uh, something that is for the masses. Um, intellectuals get to play with it, but it's really, I mean, it's it's a sort of a mass experience. Um, is Shakespeare really on life support? Well, not 
not I mean, maybe reading him at the university could be being under challenge, but Shakespeare is not going anywhere from our culture. You can't, you can't escape him. He's in our language. People talk through Shakespeare every day. And so I, I think a lot about uh, the, the increasing intersection of the university and uh, the, the engines of culture that we have that just didn't exist a hundred years ago. Um, like as the country has democratized in a way, there's such a, a, a much more direct connection. And, um, and it seems to be deeply alarming to certain kinds of progressives. <laughs> it's not happening fast enough. There isn't enough of this. And then a certain kind of conservative, which is what there's way too much of this. This is, you know, this is all going to, you know, it's all going to pot. And I think about it through the lens of um, uh, the superheroes, um, right? The, this phenomenon that is sort of taken over uh, everything in the culture. These are really conservative characters. Like at the end of the day, their job is to preserve status quo, maybe improve it a little bit, but they're like, again, Lincolnian conservatives um, that they don't really want to overturn. They're not revolutionaries. And these are the peak of our popular culture right now. I'm not terribly worried about the radicals taking over so long as Captain America has his shield and is doing his thing, you know, um, that, uh, and so there's some alarm for that, but it does make me think about this question um, that, that it helps points us to, but I think Aristotle also had his thumb on the pulse of, as with so many pulses, there is something that, that the masses are receiving. So, non-college educated people, which is still the majority of America. Most people don't go to universities. Most people don't have advanced, uh, bachelor's degrees, associate's degrees. Um, and that's still true. Uh, people tend to not think that, but it's way less than 40% have a bachelor's degree. So what are all of those people supposed to do? How are we supposed to reach them with our liberal arts education if it's even possible? Um, and so this is where I, it leads me to this question. Is it possible to get a kind of liberal arts education outside of the university? Yeah, again, I, I think that's a, another wonderful question. And uh, <laughs> I'm having uh, um, post-traumatic stress disorder because I was asked that question a couple of years ago um, is before my book came up, is going to talk that it's something to do with the themes of it. And it wasn't, can you get a liberal arts education outside of university? But, but, but it was related. It was, what could a person who is not located inside a university do? And I, I must say, I really fumbled back on that question. <laughs> I think I'm maybe too much of a university guy. So I spent a little time thinking about it. Um, but I, I do think it's a tricky question. I, I mean, I think the, the short answer is, uh, of course you can, because again, um, liberal arts education proceeds <laughs> um, mm -hmm. the, the very existence of, of universities. And, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, th th think about what, um, why we read some of the books we read and sort of great books programs at universities and even even programs that include, as, as our first year seminar does, some contemporary works. Why do we read the works that we read? And it has something to do with their being recommended to us in some sense, right? Sometimes they're recommended to us for, for centuries by lots and lots of people, right, with some dissent. And th th those works are canonical works. And 
you know, they're, they're sometimes they're broadly canonical, sometimes they're canonical in a particular field, but they're the books that, that they've been recommended to us as books that contain something that we're going to benefit from. Either they'll tell us something about um, the way the world we live in came to be, or they actually you know, contain some wisdom maybe that we might be able to um, get to it. And we're just sort of sort of told that, you might say, uh, maybe in a sophisticated way once we're at universities. But um, you know, nobody thinks that, that we all sit down in a room and develop from scratch the idea of what yeah. books we should read, right? There's a long <laughs> tradition of, uh, of this stuff. And uh, so that goes on inside university, but it's also true outside of universities. That is to say that, you know, there, there are some books that people recommend, even outside universities, as you say. And I hear Shakespeare is pretty good, right? And, yeah. um, you know, you, you, you can do that too, right? I mean, you can, you can pick up a book and um, see if you get anywhere. You can, you can try out, you know, a teacher, some guru, um, and see if, if they're any good. I, I mean, I think there is a lot of fortune involved, Um because it's, it's, again, it, it's difficult to distinguish between people who can teach you something and people who can't. I mean, even after somebody's recommended something to you. But, you know, you, you can do that and, and, and think for yourself. And there are things more loosely structured than universities that, 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 can, that can help you do it. You know, uh, a reading group you know, in your neighborhood or, or your church or your synagogue or... You know, there, there are a number of groups. Often they're, they're started by academics in some ways or another, or another, but they're devoted to adult education, sort of sit outside of um, universities. In fact, Zena Hitzes has started one um, called the, um, I want to say it's the Catherine Project, which, which is for adult learners. Um, and at least at, at this point is, uh, you know, consists of online um, reading groups. Um, so there are all kinds of uh, programs like that um, if you need to go about it. Um, programmatically, but um, yeah, I think even outside of um, programmatics, um, you know, you, you've got a shot. Uh, I write a bit about my um, my friend, uh, my good friend, uh, uh, Bob Brown. He's a doctor. He's alumni of um, of Versailles, who I came to be in, in touch with uh, quite some while back. And he told me that um, when he came to college, um, he um, was so focused on being a doctor, he was pre-med and, you know, he had to work to get through college. They really had no time to think very much about anything other than courses they needed to get through. But then, then later in life, and I, I think in no particularly organized way, you know, he, he started reading, um, you know, sort of, sort of canonical texts. And, um, you know, he didn't necessarily think he could do it simply on his own. So he sort of looked around for ways of finding out more about them, but, you know, anybody can do. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, St. Augustine, right? Take up and read. Um, Take up like, and read, yeah. Right? That's uh, that's what we should be doing. It, where, where it's interesting. It's a little bit easier if you can fasten the first passage you see and guide your life <laughs> thereafter <laughs> right. that way. It's happening right. confessions. But either way, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Take right. up and read. <laughs> um, it, but it, I, I do still, it's the the part of Bloom's book that was so interesting to me. I mean, the whole thing is interesting. Um, though once he gets into the German idealism and the Nietzsche stuff, it, it especially as an undergrad, it's a tough book. But that first third is really about this question of popular culture and its influence and, and these sort of relationships. And, and that's been of, of deep interest to me. I mean, since then, but, but in, up to the present. Because I, maybe it is, there's a little too much of that democratic spirit still in me. You know, I still am an American, these kinds of things. I can't escape it. Um, but what it, 
what it always uh, leads me to ask in these sort of situations is, is the goal of this kind of education a kind of informed patriotism? Right? Reagan liked to talk about that. We need to get people to be informed patriots and this kind of stuff. Or is it to, uh, is it to produce um, uh, approximations of Socrates? Or is it to produce, uh, you know, engineers that have read Shakespeare? Like what, what ultimately is sort of the end goal? Is, is it to live a, an active political life, a sort of a cloistered intellectual one, or some sort of hybrid democratic thing where you just sort of meander around life and bump into things that are interesting? Thanks. Yeah, I, I want to uh, just uh, um, circle back a bit before I answer, answer that question, because something you said um, about, about bloom and democracy reminds me. I, I just want to want to say again, and I, I, I point, although Bloom himself was not a conservative, um, you know, I, I do think it's a feature of, of uh, conservative disposition in some ways to um, at least a certain kind of conservative disposition to recognize that, um, you know, any given polity has, has virtues and vices. And in some ways I, I emphasize the democratic elements of liberal education, because I think that um, they're undervalued. Um, but but I, I, I don't mean to um, dismiss concerns that, that you know, Cokeville, Bloom and others you know, have about um, you know, the, the, the love of equality um, and the way in which that as dogma can get in the way <laughs> mm -hmm. um, of, um, of thinking. Um, so, so I, th I think that th that's all true. But, but at the same time, when we talk to come directly to your question, this is a problem that I think is is made more urgent by sort of institutional mass education. And, and you're right that, that that's still the case that most people don't have college degrees. And so, even when we talk about people complain about college for everybody, which is sort of a real thing. I mean, that's to say that that you know, if I look at my the public school that my my uh, my younger son still attends that's that is kind of their their mantra even if it's not going to happen that's that's the idea and it's not clear what the other tracks are so so i understand um the worry um about that but um anyway even though it's the case that um that you know not that many people or not not a majority of people um end up taking a college degree it's still the case that basically we're in, we're in sort of a mass education situation and, um, and people have been complaining about that for a long time. I mean, it goes back beyond this, but I, you know, you, you pick up a book like, uh, I'm going to remember the title. I'm not remembering the title, but it's by Robert Maynard Hutchins, um, uh, famous president of um, the University of Chicago right in the 1930s and, and, and talking precisely about this, that we're getting these students who simply, we have to figure out how we can educate people who are basically not prepared um, for the kind of education we want to offer them. And this has been the going complaint, you know, yeah. I think before then and, and, and ever since um, too. Um, but, but it does present a problem in terms of goals too, I think. So not many people pursue a philosophic life, right? Um, and on some conceptions of what the philosophic life is, you know, it's something so rarefied that almost nobody's really pursuing it. So I was just reading a manuscript uh, recently um, that deals with a question. So I told you I, I worked on the 18th century political philosopher 
um, Rousseau, but, 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 you know, according to some, he's not really a philosopher at all, right? Even though he's sort of a canonical philosopher, he's in a way not devoted enough to, um, to rationality really to count. So I only bring that, that up that example to show that there are some conceptions of what philosophy is that are so stringent and narrow that if you say that that's the aim of um, liberal education, then certainly that's not going to fit in any kind of institutional framework, right? So if we're going to talk about colleges and universities as we have them, um, or even as, as we had them, <laughs> but certainly now as we have them as engaged in sort of mass education, it can't quite be the case that, um, that that's the, the sort of primary aim, even if it might be a highest aspiration, you might say that look at Socrates, that's our model. The assumption still has to be that you know, most people are not going to be um, Socrates and perhaps nobody um, is going to be Socrates, right? I mean, we sit in a society which, which does us the favor of paying our bills and it would just be a rather odd thing to say, well, we're just doing this to promote a life that, that maybe no one has ever led except maybe <laughs> five or six people right. who, I, who I think maybe have. Um, so, so how do we deal with this, given that, in a way, nonetheless, there's a sense in which Socratic increased at the very peak, you might say, of, the, of, of, of reasonability. Um, but one circumstance, I think, which is sort of happy for university people is we live in a tradition influenced by the view that although not all citizens need to be philosophers, that they ought to be reasonable. Uh, so... Thomas Jefferson's last public letter suggests the unbounded exercise of reason uh, will tend to support the principles of, of, of the revolution. Um, and in practice, for example, in understanding when it is that um, a government is beginning to move in the direction of despotism, right? In practice, liberal democratic citizenship places relatively high demands on the rationality um, of citizens, at least a, a goodly number <laughs> of citizens mm -hmm. need to be um, pretty rational. Now, if that happens to be true, then you don't need to worry too much um, about whether the aim is political or philosophical, right? And in most cases, if you're lucky, if things go well, you'll, you'll get reflective citizenship. Even that's pretty hard to get. Yeah. Right? Um, and maybe in very rare cases, you get something else, depending on how rare you think the philosophic life is. But, you know, then I want to add, going back to um, Zena Hitz and um, something that um, we've talked about before, uh, you need to lead a philosophic life to devote some part of your leisure time to thinking free of necessity, right? In a way, you might say even, you know, professional scholars, you know, are, are in this boat, right, you know, 80% bourgeois <laughs> living in the suburbs, leading relatively conventional lives, and 20% where, you know, we have more leisure than most, right? But, um, but, but even most scholars, you know, aren't 100% uh, leading the philosophic life um, and the way being discussed here. So um, really we're looking out to, you know, even when we're talking about um, this highest thing, we're looking out to carve out some space. You know, it's going to be narrow, probably, but carve out some space um, for for freedom of thought um, about things that, that that grip us, most important things um, in a life. And I, I think that liberal education can do that, right? Quite outside um, the question of citizenship. 
And I really emphasize it in the book, even though liberal education traditionally, and I keep talking about in these terms, really means free in the sense of, you know, I'm not going to be worried about utility. Um, I do emphasize a side of, of lack and also Benjamin Franklin that, that makes a lot actually of the usefulness of this kind of education. And um, if you think, for example, about the idea of narrowness, that not only prevents you from being a good thinker in your leisure time, it also subjects you to great stupidity in practical matters, mm -hmm. in citizenship, in whatever work you pursue outside of citizenship and so on. So, so I, I, I think it's important to bear that in mind. It's kind of justification for liberal education that's quite, quite helpful, I think, um, in, in, in our very practically oriented um, polity. Um, but, but Locke says, you know, at the same time that the education he's describing suits a soul devoted to truth. It's both things at the same time. And I don't want to be like the Bud Light commercial that says, let's have both, right? There are no tensions. It's great and less filling. Um, and it may even be wrong, right? Jefferson may be wrong to think that there's as little tension between um, uh, the untrammeled exercise of reason and the virtues, habits, principles most conducive to uh, liberal democratic life or the principles of the revolution, to put it um, in those terms. Um, but that's certainly our gamble, right? <laughs> that's, that's the basis on which um, we've built um, um, our education. In some sense, it's a gamble on which the modern university um, is built. Um, and it certainly has some virtues. <laughs> Um, whereas um, other visions of um, education have some, some worrying vices, right? That's what we talked about um, at, at the very beginning. So, um, so the ultimate end, right? I think I say somewhere that Socrates is sort of the patron saint of, of liberal education. There's a sense in which you have to um, keep that, that, that vision of excellence right in front of you, um, I think. But... Um, but, but I also think that um, it, it's the case that that liberal education has, and, and even looking to Socrates, right, has, has benefits for um, people who are not going to pursue um, the philosophic life, which means most of us, including people who are being paid to teach and learn um, in universities. I, I want to say one more thing about this. I don't want to eat up too much um, of, uh, 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 of your time. But um, in how, how should I put this? Uh, you know what? I'm just going to let that drop. I can't think of the best way of formulating okay. the ideas. But, but the, the idea was, but no, I, I, I actually, now, now I have thought of it. Um, so, you know, there's this odd realm, you know, you might say that, that scholars occupy, which especially if they, they read, right? Especially if they're great books people, right? They, they, it's a realm that sort of leads them to doubt themselves somewhat. So, um, you know, you read somebody like uh, Rousseau or, or Nietzsche and some other thinkers too, right? They don't have a lot of tolerance for people who we call, who we would call scholars, right? Especially mm -hmm. professionalized scholarship. It's very strange. And it's basically on grounds that are simultaneously populist, um, but also sort of elitist, right? On the one hand, they kind of think for reasons, you know, just discussing, you know, they're not leading the philosophic life. They're, they're, they're just scholars, you know, what are they doing? What, what good is this life 
of semi-scholarship, right? In Rousseauan terms, right? Why is it more valuable for me to be teaching some classes and, you know, pulling in a salary and reading some books while living in the suburbs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, than it would be for me to, you know, <laughs> dig a ditch that would be useful for somebody or alleviate, you know, child poverty if I had the capacity to do that, right? Or at least to, to help with that. Um, so th th there's a real question, right? Rousseau, who I think, you know, he makes a kind of full-throated attack on the arts and sciences, in the end sort of rescues them, but rescues them only for some people. And this sort of semi-philosophic life, you might might say, mm -hmm. um, is, is not of much value to him. And I, I think that that, to exaggerate a little bit, but I, I think that um, that challenge really has to be kept in mind. That is to say that, that you know, I've tried to uh, be, you might say, as celebratory as possible <laughs> uh, of the wonderful things I, I do think go on um, at universities. But that is a serious and real challenge. And I think that, you know, it is, again, it is in part answered um, by the notion that, um, you know, um, uh, non-philosophers are, are human beings and human beings desire to know and they, they, they have minds that... Um, it's a great good um, to, to exercise. And um, so again, whatever leisure time that they've got, it's good to teach them to make um, good use of it, right? That, that's defense. But I do think that there is, there is a sort of whole hazy area between you know, the life of the philosopher, and you might say the life of the uh, person who's instilled with the best opinions, right? They're conducive to doing the best service um, to the community or mankind um, and then this, you know, you talked about reflective citizenship, and you also talk about um, reflection in one, one's private life, right? This sort of great um, in between that um, um, exactly what shape it should take that's actually going to, uh, to be good for us, um, I think is a real question, right? Another way of putting the objection is, you know, people are always saying, right? It's, a, you know, the products of liberal arts education aren't notably, at least it's hard to show, right, that they're notably happier, <laughs> better, or, or, you know, so on. And, you know, we can develop some confidence, you know, by sort of looking at our own students, looking at our own lives. You know, we don't have a neat rubric that's going to tell us. We might develop some confidence along these lines. There are some reasons to think that's true, right? Um, so you can kind of think about it and think, well, this seems like our best chance um, of uh, bettering ourselves. Um, but, uh, you know, it's easy to fool yourself, I think, especially if you're already devoted to this idea. And so I think those challenges, we kind of need to keep them in mind. But one of the beauties of, of the kind of education that, that, that we practice is, is that we do. I mean, that is to say that, you know, going all the way back to Socrates, he, he shows himself um, out there confronting challenges um, to his way of life. And of course, like the common intellectual experience, you know, we don't just, you know, it's not just Socrates 101. We, um, we read the book of Genesis or the book of Job. We've read one or the other for all 15 or 16 years um, that I've been here. We, we look at alternatives um, to the kind of education we're, we're, we're describing alternatives to make the kind of education we're pursuing you know, look foolish. So in a way we're saved in, 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 in a way um, or at least we have a chance of being saved in a way that um, that other uh, other you know other uh, 
ways of thinking about that we really you know, might hold very dear. It's harder to save ourselves from by the sort of open-endedness um, of liberal education, insisting that even that opinion needs to rest on um, a foundation we can defend and recognizing, you know, our partiality as people mm-hmm. who feel we benefited um, from this kind from, from this kind of education. So, um, yeah, I, I think those are real, you know, real and serious challenges that, that that need to be kept in mind. And I try to keep some of them in mind, at least in the course um, of my book. Right at the same time, it's clear that, um, that 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 we have sort of, you know, rolled those dice, made that gamble. Right, um, mm-hmm. that enlightenment is <laughs> that that's a good thing, right? To uh, to pursue, and and I, I think a certain kind of conservative, traditionalist conservative, uh, demeaning type of conservative, has has to think maybe a bit more about the costs of well, let's roll that back, right? That that's an old bet. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot of centuries behind it now. No, that's right. And the the, uh, the one element there to sort of round out our, our discussion. I was going to ask you about uh, to give the best pitch for and against uh, liberal arts education, but I think you just did that um, and, and the, the dangers that are there. But the one element that I, I wanted to highlight to sort of bring this full round, um, the, uh, as you say, non-philosophers are human. So are the philosophers. And sometimes I think they forget that they, uh, in, in Aristotle, sort of whether you're a beast or a god, you sit somewhere in the middle um, philosophers still sit somewhere in the middle. Um, even if they err on the side of the heavens, they, they sometimes forget that they, um, they also have to uh, go to the bathroom and they have to eat and they have to engage in these bodily things that require, that remind them of their humanity. Um, and sometimes it, it becomes too easy to forget those things. Um, you know, well, now you're making me hungry. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, I, I think we've done uh, a, quite a walkthrough here on on liberal education and the challenges that face it. Um, so I'm going to leave this to the sort of the last open-ended thing. Um, if there was anything else you would like to say about uh, the benefits or the challenges, uh, are you optimistic about the future of liberal arts education, given your uh, position at, at your university? Is, uh, is around the bend? Are we, are we approaching a, a precipice or a leveling off or an escalation? Um, and just your general reflections, you point to some of this in the book. So I'm going to give you a chance to articulate that here as we round out the conversation. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'll say a, a few things, at least about this. I, I, you know, the, the, the book, um, let's be reasonable, conservative case. <laughs> give you two more minutes to buy it. Um, That's right. The, um, yeah, but my, my book really, so I said it was in part inspired by gratitude for the kind of education that I've had, but you know, many books are also inspired by frustration, and you know, there there are several different trends that I find frustrating, and and we we've touched on them some, so I'll discuss them only briefly here, just to kind of put them all in front of us at the same time. I'm not saying they're exhaustive; there are many things to be worried about, and I only talk about some <laughs> um, in my book. Um, but one is is a broad thoughtlessness. To exaggerate, I mean, there are many worthy people engaged in the practice of trying to justify liberal education, but um, I think we're really lacking for, um, and there may be more than one, um, but for um, coherent, inspiring (laughs) um, justifications um, for the kind of work I think that um, people involved in liberal education feel like they're doing, Um, but I I think we have some trouble 
um, articulating the case. And I think that's in part because, you know, we, we feel the situation is in some sense or another desperate. We don't have um, the courage of our convictions in that sense, right? We go out into the world and we say, you know, what would you like us to be? And that naturally entails <laughs> uh, throwing out a lot of different justifications and seeing what sticks, you know, to the student, to the donor, to the parent, um, and so on. Um, you know, Robert Maynard Hutchins was also writing in difficult <laughs> economic times, although he, he, his university was nonetheless on somewhat sounder footing than, the, than most um, even then, but, but, but he argued, and I think there's a lot to this, that you have to decide what it is you do and then go out and raise money, right? Instead of uh, trying to figure out what people might give you money want and then do that. So I, I worry about a kind of incoherence, um, even among people who claim to be speaking for liberal education and the humanities. Um, I worry about my fellow conservatives. I remain a self-described um, conservative, but I think that um, their mood really has soured um, on higher education. The mood has you know, never been great. <laughs> so uh, I wouldn't say it's never, never soured before, but I think there's even less of a reform element um, than there used to be. And, and you really have, um, you know, non-marginal figures talking in pretty apocalyptic terms about higher education. I think about guys like um, Victor Davis Hanson would be one. Roger Kimball is a long record of being worried about higher education. He's become even more, I think, apocalyptic um, in recent years. You know, just it's so bad that we should just burn it down and see what, what arises out of the ashes. Hanson says, you know, we've got religious schools and, and DVDs. That's conservative, right? <laughs> learn how to use our DVD players again. But, um, you know, and again, I, 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 that worries me. I, th I think it is based on um, a distorted view of what's going on um, in, in higher education. Um, not that it doesn't identify some real vices, but, um, but a distorted understanding. I, I try to say that as a uh, you know, person inside the university. On the other hand, I, I might be prejudiced. On the other hand, it's pretty funny to say that, uh, what do you know about the ivory tower? You're in the ivory tower, right? The, the, so you know, I, I try to present um, you know, a version of what's going on. I think a lot of my colleagues, including conservative-minded ones, um, would agree is a, a little bit closer to the truth than what you're going to get if you read campus reform every day and look at the five negative stories produces about higher education in your feed on a daily basis. I, I worry about that um, kind of distortion, but for reasons I mentioned, I feel like it's going to sweep away the good away, along with the bad in, 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 insofar as it, it, it has the power um, to do those things. Um, so I really want to say to conservatives, don't give up, right, as, as the song goes. Um, there are many good things going on in higher education and, and many conservative-minded people are trying to work within um, higher education um, to, to reform it um, on the assumption that destroying it, A, isn't an option and B, probably wouldn't do much good. Uh, and then, I mean, importantly, it is really true that um, I think, you know, even, you know, people who are cited saying things aren't so bad, nonetheless agree that, it really is a liberal bastion right here, a left liberal bastion here, bastion here in um, higher education. I think that in a way, precisely because they have a kind of propaganda assault um, coming from conservatives to um, try to um, argue against, um, my, my left liberal colleagues are not very thoughtful um, about higher education, particularly the dangers of mistaking um, political convictions um, for the truth 
and thereby politicizing higher education under the guise of simply telling and uncovering the truth. So I, I don't think they take those things seriously enough. I mean, I, I don't think the remedies are obvious. It's not super clear how you're going to get more viewpoint diversity um, in the university. It's not super clear how you're going to strengthen professional norms, which still exist and, and prevent a lot of proselytizing from going on at colleges and universities. But I think that my left liberal colleagues are too inclined to say, well, that's just, you know, that's a bunch of crazy Republican legislators. That's just campus reform or whatever. And they tend to have very, you know, self-flattering <laughs> sort of understandings of why it is that conservative thought doesn't have more of a place in the university, which basically come down to conservatives are stupid or conservatives are greedy, right? And they, they, they just can't handle our free pursuit of the truth, right? Very self-flattering um, notions of, um, of why criticisms come their way and not much thinking through of what might be legitimate um, in those criticisms, uh, you know, and I think much is legitimate in those criticisms. I do try to highlight that in my book as well. Um, as for optimism, um, <laughs> that's a, varies a bit from day to day, but um, I'm reasonably optimistic. I mean, I think that, you know, there's an inclination to think that this is, this is the worst of times and you know, it really isn't. I mean, even when we're sort of looking at, again, apocalyptic visions now coming from within higher education, but what's going on, it tends to come down to, well, we'll be doing not as much humanities as we used to. Um, we're not to have as many majors as we did before. It's not really about the utter destruction um, of these things. And, um, you, know, you know, things will be better or worse. They'll occupy a bigger or smaller corner um, of our colleges and universities. But, um, but um, yeah, I think if you think in terms of sweeping reforms, it begins to seem quite hopeless just because it's an immense, <laughs> as you say, also bureaucratic system, diversified, many different kinds of problems from place to place. But, you know, with suitable organization, I think both within um, universities um, and, and also, um, you know, uh, groups that, that, you know, operate across many different universities, like the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, which is outside the university, but really is concerned about university matters, the Heterodox Academy, which consists of academics, they're really operating within the universities. Um, and then, you know, it doesn't take uh, more than five or six people <laughs> uh, with a strong interest in liberal education, they don't necessarily have to agree with each other um, to affect considerable change within a single institution, which can then become a model for other institutions. So I, I think rather than sort of wring our hands or cry about how um, bad things are, we have to think about the good that we can do. Um, at least some of it is going to be um, within the university, even if there's some alternatives to pursue um, outside of it, um, which, which one can do as well. That, so um, somewhat optimistic. Yeah, so still there's optimism. That's, that's good. Uh, I think a, a really wonderful way of, of rounding all this out, and you make reference to this in the book, is um, when, when Joseph Cropsey would, would compel people, have courage, right? Courage as you face these things. And that maybe we, uh, people who are, have this uh, devotion or desire for liberal arts education should take charge of what Cropsey said, have courage as you face these things. So uh, yes, Jonathan, I very much appreciate you coming and spending the time with me today. This was a, a really excellent conversation. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Stephen. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the conversations on this channel, please consider subscribing.
or supporting the channel more directly with the link in the description. And I hope you'll join me in the next episode.